the country right now bracing for a major hurricane while the president through his statements and bluster here in Washington fueling some political storms of his own. I'm Mary Alice Parks joined by my colleague Justin Fischel, Ali Rogan and a special guest today again two days in a row. Welcome to the briefing room. Tom Bossart, an ABC News contributor and former Secretary of Homeland Security, the department, the agency that that does so much federal disaster response. Unfortunately I'm only here when there's a bad day. <laughs> well that's probably true. Yeah. Um, Tom, yesterday the president was really confident talking to reporters and to the American people, said the country was totally Totally prepared, as prepared as anyone has ever been for a hurricane of this magnitude. Mm -hmm. Is there a political risk or, or, a, or a, an actual risk to sending a message like that, or is this what the country needs to hear? Well, look, a little bit of both, right? So you want the president to strike the note that you want the rest of emergency managers to strike. Take this seriously. Don't look at this as if it's not really a problem and then get yourself into trouble. So I don't think he meant to send the message that you should sit home and watch this on TV and not take precaution. Personal accountability is just that. That's the message and theme of the day. His emergency managers and FEMA directors and all those beneath him are making that point. I think what the president wanted to do is reassure the American people that from his vantage point, those federal agencies are poised to help. That doesn't mean this is going to be easy. It doesn't mean this won't be messy. And it also, unfortunately, doesn't mean there won't be loss of life. And he knows it's a big political issue, hurricanes. I mean, and you were with him during one of the worst hurricane seasons on record. How is he responding right now? What's going on behind the scenes, you think, with the president? Well, you know, he's taking it seriously. And, and by that, I mean he's dedicating time and personal attention to it. So presidents have to delegate a lot of things. And right now, he's got it on his mind. He's watching the coverage of it. He's taking the phone calls and the mm -hmm. time and the meeting space and, and clearing his schedule. So I think that's important. But when he goes out with the bluster, look, he's, he is who he is. He's President Trump. He's got a lot of confidence in himself and in his team, and he's going to cheerlead for them. I don't think that should be taken as him saying, don't worry about this, we've got it. There's a right. lot of hard right. days ahead of us, and there's yeah. going to be a lot of frustration ahead of us. There's been this big push for evacuations. About a million people under mandatory evacuations. We've been hearing it from governors and mayors. Just get out of Dodge. I keep wondering about the people that really struggle to evacuate, that don't have cars of their own or places right. to go. What responsibility do local governments, the federal government, have to help some of those people? Yeah, so look, the first and foremost responsibility here is not only on individuals, but those state and local authorities and volunteer organizations. The federal government ultimately gets a lot of attention, but provides very little support in this regard. Mm -hmm. So even the shelters that are authorized <laughs> by the federal government, in some cases funded by them, are run and certified by local volunteer organizations. Even the Red Cross, they deserve a lot of credit, and Salvation Army and, and others like that. So uh, right now, um, there are services available, but the federal government doesn't provide services to individuals until after this has reached a point where it's exceeded the state and local's collective capability. And the president's issued an emergency, but not major disaster declarations yet. So you'll see some volunteers, but you're not going to see a lot of federal resources for people yet. Yeah, it's just a scary time. Everyone has to be on high alert. But I want to ask all of you guys about another story that was making a lot of headlines, a lot of buzz overnight. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley was out overnight and this morning accusing this administration of moving funds, $10 million from FEMA uh, response to to ICE, to immigration services, and is saying that this, this moving of the money coincided with that zero tolerance policy separating children from parents at the border. Uh, Ali, I know you've been researching this uh, all morning, these sort of pretty dramatic headlines. And this morning we had the FEMA director on Good Morning America responding to this. I want to listen to what he had to say and then ask you guys what you thought about it. So let's listen to that. The 10 million, the funds that were uh, moved from FEMA to ICE, does that affect your preparations at all, the loss of that, th that money? 
No, not at all. It's just an attempt to divert uh, away from the, the life safety issues at Florence. It does not come out of the disaster relief fund that funds everything behind me, that funds everything in the field. So it's a, it's a non-issue for us at this moment. So a non-issue. Allie, you think he's right? Yeah, so this was $10 billion, or excuse me, $10 million that came from FEMA's operational budget. And so that is administration, administrative costs. Senator Merkley called this a scandal, but it may actually be more of a case of bureaucratic sausage making. These are funds that are totally separate from a $25 billion disaster relief fund that also exists, that is separate from this. And Tom was saying off camera that it may actually be a lot more money than that. And also, the other thing to keep in mind is that yes 10 million dollars sounds like a lot of money because it is a lot of money if, if that you're dealing money, with disaster relief exactly i mean you consider giving that money to puerto rico recovery efforts would be a huge boon however this is again money that was never meant to be spent directly on disaster right. relief so doesn't the, mean a home that's is not going to get built somewhere necessarily it's not the denial of those services this is a totally different bucket of money Tom, you were an advisor in this White House. Is this political spin or is this a real story? It's political spin. The Department of Homeland Security has an over $40 billion annual budget. So to put it in perspective, we're not talking about $10 million compared to the Disaster Relief Fund or even to FEMA's $1 billion appropriations. We're talking about internal moving of money in a $40 billion okay, organization. But, 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 so we get that. I think we're in agreement. That may not be the, the scandal here. But I think what's, pe what's rubbing people the wrong way is the, the comments from yesterday. The... This is an unsung success. This, we've Just, Justin, you're just taking my next question. Okay. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, uh, and, and, and giving himself A-plus grades from a mystery group of people that haven't given him these grades. Okay, so. but let's take a moment. Let's fill people in. Yesterday, what Justin's referring to, at the White House, the president was asked about the White House's response to the disaster in Puerto Rico a year ago, the response to Hurricane Maria. He said it was an unsung success, mm -hmm. a huge mm -hmm. success. We're going to get into it more later, but he's been in a political Twitter battle with the mayor of San Juan again. What do you guys make of this? Tom, was it an unsung success in Puerto Rico? Yep, absolutely. And here's the thing. There's a lot of empathy that we need to put behind this answer. So I'll try to do that very quickly. There's loss of life. There's suffering that continues. There were conditions that were deplorable in Puerto Rico that predate the storm that require a whole lot of extra attention that wouldn't normally accompany a storm and its recovery. But the actual mobilization and logistics effort that went into sending in federal and volunteer resources into that island right effort. after Puerto Rico was not only a huge effort, it was unprecedented, and it was well run, and it saved a lot of lives. But of course, FEMA's that's own after-action report. That's different from suggesting that we've gotten ourselves a year to date back into a position in which things are, are rosy in Puerto Rico. In fact, it took more than 10 years to recover after Katrina. And so there's a whole sense of, 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 of moving goalposts on what the president is trying to take and, credit and for. Actually, and it's, they're trying to make him look like he's not compassionate in this regard. Well, I think he, I he didn't look too compassionate, to be honest. He talks about a success, and he doesn't mention some of these things. I mean, 83% of residents reported in a Kaiser Russian Post poll that came out this week that their lives were dramatically impacted by employment setbacks, worsening health problems, damage to homes, yeah. loss of power for over three months. I mean, yeah. that's almost every single resident. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you can talk about the success even if there was unprecedented response when there was also so, so much hurt, so much loss of life, yeah. is uh, just ma makes him sort of 
look a little cold, I think, yeah, and that's people were responding to. I think that's fair, but you know, it's, it's like the nomenclature issue we just talked about a moment ago. It sounds like a $10 million scandal at first until you dig into it and learn the scale yeah. and the context of it. When you talk about the nomenclature here, we separate the mitigation and planning from the response effort, the life-saving effort that we're going to mobilize here for Florence, and, and conversely, what we mobilized for Puerto Rico right after the mm -hmm. storm. And then we talk about recovery separately. The recovery efforts are plagued with bureaucracy and slowness and distrust among contractors and people that spend public money on behalf of public elected officials who are there to put trust measures in place. And so uh, at this point, you, it's almost a no-win game for him. But he's, I think, rightfully proud of what he mobilized to respond and do the life-saving yeah. mission in Puerto mm -hmm. Rico. And so he took a little credit for it. I think maybe he's getting a little blame. But something that Tom said right at the beginning of what you said was, I want to put some empathy behind the president's yeah. statement. Yeah. I think just underscores that it's got to be frustrating for the folks that are communicating these things within the White House to make the points that Tom is making mm -hmm. and finesse the points that the president's making. Right, if, if I exactly could, and I don't want to go belabor this, but I, I'm sorry <laughs> to interrupt you, but I, I spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico and with the people of Puerto Rico yeah. and with the governor, and they need to know that from my experience, the president does have that behind the scenes off camera empathy for them. He sent me down there a lot and what they're dealing with, I would report back to him and he couldn't fathom it, right? Mm -hmm. So he does have that sense and they should hear that. He well, I want to bring in. I want to bring in more of our colleagues. Everyone's talking about this today. It rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, raised a lot of eyebrows, and Democrats on Capitol Hill, uh, Senate M Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, was demanding an apology from the president. I want to bring in John Parkinson, our colleague up there. John, what has the response been to the president's comments on Puerto Rico? And are lawmakers going to continue to push him on this? You know, we haven't seen that much oversight on the response from Puerto Rico. If they're really upset, is there more they should be doing? Yeah, the Democrats have really been, you know, uh, condemning the president's comments. I spoke with Steny Hoyer, the House Democratic Whip today. He was very critical of the president's comments that this is an unsung success. Um, I think from the other Democrats, you know, I talked to G.K. Butterfield yesterday, a Democrat from North Carolina ahead of the storm. And while he's bracing for its landfall, he tells me that he's pretty confident in what the first responders have done for preparations. He wants to get out of the way, let them do their job. And then when he sees problems come up, that's when he's going to step in and conduct that oversight. And so in the next few days, are you expecting lawmakers to be out there, be, be in front of the cameras, or is this a moment where they really try to take a back seat, like you said? Sort of, is there a way to support local authorities from behind the scenes? Yeah, you know, some, uh, some Republicans and Democrats that I talked with yesterday down in South and North Carolina, they just told me that they want to be able to be a means of communications to their constituents. When the first responders need to get a message out, they want to be able to use their reach to their constituency to help convey that message. And they're really underscoring really the dangers of this storm, right? We might see a couple of inches of rain in the first couple of days, but this is something that's going to have impact for, for weeks on end. And uh, they're really concerned that even just a couple of inches could cause widespread damage and widespread flooding. All right, well, John, stick with us because we're going to pivot to politics, and I know you have no shortage of thoughts and opinions on that, but I want to say goodbye to Don Bossart, ABC News contributor, former advisor there at the White House, and Ali Rogan, thank you so much. Oh, are you going to stick with us? You're going to talk politics, too. I can stick around. Do okay, whatever you guys We're going to keep chit-chatting, but Tom, <laughs> thank you so thank much. You. Before we're going to, like, you know, have this awkward sort of you snaking out here, I want to take, uh, if we have him, 538's Micah Cohen, out with some big news today from our friends over at 538. A new forecast about the Senate. We are under 60 days to those midterm elections, and we're curious what all you guys over there at 538 are saying. What is the likelihood that even the Senate could maybe flip control? 
Yeah, the midterms are coming up fast, right? So we launched our Senate forecast today. It shows Democrats with a one in three chance of winning a majority. That obviously gives Republicans about a two in three chance of keeping it. And I was struck not only by, wait, wait, let's bring that graphic up one more time. What is really interesting to me here is the high probability of a 50-50 split. Talk to me about whether or not that is possible. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. I mean, the Senate is so evenly divided now, and you have sort of the irresistible force meeting the movable object this year in that the environment is so good for Democrats, but the Senate map is so good for Republicans. And those two, at the moment, according to our forecast, are canceling each other out a bit, and you end up with sort of a just a, you know, a, a tie in the end. You, you could get a tie. In that case, of course, the vice president, Mike Pence, would, would break it and Republicans would keep the majority. Right. The last time we've had a split like that was in 2001. And we had a lot of jostling over chairmanships and uh, just what to do and how to handle that. But I think you're right. It's important to remind people that this map was so favorable for Republicans this year. Ali, it was supposed to be a lifeboat in a way for Republicans, that they would only be defending a handful of seats, whereas Democrats would be having to defend double digits. There are 10 Democrats who are defending their seats in states that the president won. And yet somehow we are still talking about a possibility, uh, according to 538, a one in three chance possibility of Democrats taking that chamber. What do you make of that? What is going on here where the map could be so favorable for Republicans, but Democrats seem to be canceling that out? Yeah, it's actually, it's unbelievable because I don't think anybody would have thought at the beginning of this session that this is where we would be now. And just yesterday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was in Kentucky talking very honestly about the fact that uh, some of those Senate races, including some of the ones you were talking about, those 10 states the Democrats represent that President Trump won, including uh, North Dakota, West Virginia. He called those Indiana. He called those dead even. In addition to places where Republicans' efforts were supposed to be a little, uh, their chances were supposed to be almost a foregone conclusion, including Tennessee, Arizona, the Democrats there are very seriously in play. And that could, as Micah was saying, have huge implications for what the balance of power means in the Senate. In Texas. Yeah, as I was going to ask, Micah, the the forecast, as I have it, the model from 538 shows Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic challenger to Ted Cruz, with about a 3 in 10 chance of beating the senator there from Texas. Now, 3 in 10, obviously, so still not likely, still not favored, according to your modeling. But that's still going to be buzzy. That's still going to get a lot of attention. Talk to me about some about that race and some of the other red states. Yeah, I was actually a bit surprised that the model was was that bullish on uh, the Democrats' chance in Texas. I mean, part of the big thing going on there is if you look at how much money Better Work has raised, it is a ton. Um, and, and fundraising has historically been a decent predictor of how of how well these candidates do. I mean, we all know that Texas has gotten more purple over the years, but I, I think you have a chance where those changes are combining with the, the good national environment for Democrats, combined with they have a really good candidate down there, and, and altogether it's, it's giving them an outside chance here. Not even that outside, one in three is a pretty good chance. And I don't know if we still have John there talking to us from Capitol Hill, but tell us what your impressions have been from lawmakers. Is there an anxiety that they're feeling that that you've seen Republican lawmakers feel worried about the possibility of both chambers flipping in November? 
Well, I haven't heard as much uh, anxiety about the Senate flipping. I think that you know this forecast today is going to put a little new fear in, in a lot of Senate Republicans. But certainly in the House, there's a widespread concern there from House Republicans that the majority is is already gone. Um, I talked to one member a couple days ago who you know didn't want to be identified, but he did tell me that he thought there's a lot of trouble, um, that it's it's not looking good at this point, even you know 50 days out or a little more, that um, they're kind of writing it off, and so. I think that as much as they can, they're looking to grasp at some of these singular seats and just um, kind of uh, you know, do as little damage as they can to their majority. Well, John, we appreciate your insights there from Capitol Hill. You know, we started talking about a storm, and I think we should quickly end with another storm. Never-ending storm. Nice Never-ending storm. Thank you. Uh, Stormy Daniels was on The View today, yes. one of those women who's accused the president of an affair and, uh, and accusing him, uh, had accused him all along of actively working to try to silence her and her story. She had this rather personal response uh, to describing the moment she found out that Michael Cohen, the president's former personal lawyer, right. had said in court that he was directed or, or working with the president to actively try to keep her story from coming out. So let's take a listen and let's watch that moment on The View today. I, I thought it was quite something. Did you because feel vindicated? I was so overwhelmed I just broke down into sobs. Huh. because I didn't realize how much pressure I had felt. You know, people call me all kinds of names, and who cares? But to be called a liar and yeah. people not believe me for months and months and months well, had really taken its toll. So yeah. it was just so, like, yes, vindicated. Just so, I just felt like all this weight came off my shoulders. And, mm -hmm. you know, Travis said, how does it feel to now know that the world knows that you've been telling the truth? Yeah, and, and it's not just that. It's that the president, we've just learned, is not going to enforce the Non-Disclosure Act that he made, that he had her sign, which means she's free to tell her story. Though that, she kind of joked that she had been already skirting the Non-Disclosure well, Agreement. Of course, of course. But now, I mean, now th that's a huge burden off her shoulders. That's a huge legal burden off her shoulders. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, we've got a book cover out. Uh, Everyone's writing a book. She seemed poised to do this. And you know what's interesting between Stormy and the other people who have recently written a book is she wasn't in the White House. Mm. So I think that's going to make a big difference in terms of the people who can come out and question her integrity or say, well, that's not how she said it in XYZ meeting, because this doesn't include uh, anything that happened within yeah. White House palace and, entry. And to your point, this, this, her story is out there. Right. Uh, and, and I think in terms of what political damage this may put on the president, I, I don't know. I don't see, I see that damage as have been largely done already. You know, they joked at the end of that interview about her attorney, Mike Lavinati, potentially running for president. Yeah, yeah. What do you think voters would really make of that? They seem to be responding where he's going um, pretty well. Uh, I mean, he's certainly, right, stylistically, he could be an interesting counterpart to the president, but Certainly. we've seen a lot of other candidates like him fizzle out. I've said this, I think he, he I know he's taking this seriously, he's having meetings, he's, he's getting advice on how to run his campaign, and uh, I think that he, he represents an interesting rhetorical sort of counterweight to the president. Mm -hmm. uh, how serious it actually is, there's plenty of time to find that out, but we'll see. We'll see. He is making waves for sure. I'm Mary Alice Parks, joined by Justin Fischel and Ali Rogan. Thanks for watching The Briefing Room. We'll see you back here tomorrow.